Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, as we contemplate the amazing love that we just sung of, our hearts are warmed, knowing that You would love a people in such a manner to send Your only begotten Son to die for them is more than we can truly comprehend that you would allow he that is perfect and righteous in every way to die for such sinful creatures as us is truly amazing and glorious. And that's why we gather here on this day, Father, to worship you and give you praise for such a wonderful salvation that you have bestowed upon your people. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. We know, Father, that we are still sinners in need of Your grace each and every day. So we pray that You would forgive us and cleanse us. Do not allow us to cherish sin in our heart, but cause us to confess those sins so that we know that we are forgiven, for He is just and righteous and faithful to forgive His children. Father, we pray that You would bless our time together as we come to study Your Word, that You would give us understanding and enlightenment by Your Spirit. We thank you, Father, that your spirit that dwells in us, he is our teacher, and we pray that he would teach us that which we need to know today. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us today. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray, Father, that you would minister to them and work in their lives. We do pray again, Father, particularly for the needs that have been mentioned for those who are in sorrow. We pray, Father, that you would bless them with your comfort as only you can and that you would bring glory and honor to your name through these difficult situations. We continue to pray, Father, for the salvation of sinners as your gospel is preached, not only here but around the world. We thank you, Father, that your word will not return void, but your word will accomplish your purpose that you have ordained for it to accomplish. And we pray, Father, that many would come into your kingdom even this day. All of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You would take your Bibles again and turn to Mark chapter 14, and we will pick up where we left off last week with verse 27 and read through verse 31. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. I, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. One of the main tasks that we have as pastors is to give warnings, exhortations, and encouragement. Of course, this is also the duty of every parent. Every parent is to warn their children, to teach their children. You have seven days a week. A pastor only has a couple of hours on Sundays. Due to sin, warnings are needed. So we are not surprised by sin, so that we do not fall away from the truth. If you knew that there was a potential dangerous situation, you would warn your children. If we knew that there was a power line down over near the playground, we would not allow our children to go out there around that power line, would we? We would warn them to stay away because of the possibility of being electrocuted. The other day I was seeking to teach Reuben how to use a lawnmower. And I told him to stay away from where the blade is because it was dangerous. Because he could easily cut a toe off or a hand off. 
giving a warning. It's important to do that. We do it. Why? Because we want them to be in good health. We want them to be safe from such. We wouldn't assume that they are smart enough to stay away and simply keep quiet. We wouldn't assume, well, they know better, so therefore I don't have to give a warning. As one instructor said, never get presumptuous. Follow the basic rules. And if you do that consistently, you'll have little to fear. Likewise, we must realize that the Christian life is full of warnings. Trusting and obeying our Lord is something that we are all called to do. Therefore, we must know God's Word to be able to heed the warnings. How can we heed the warnings if we don't know what God has told us in His Word as far as those warnings? Scripture gives us many, many warnings about sin and how sin will wreck a person's life, how sin will destroy a person's testimony. There's much to learn from the warnings that Jesus give to His disciples in the Gospels. And we see from these verses that we're even looking at today that we can be just like Peter and the other disciples, foolishly thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. From this passage, we see that Jesus knows man's heart better than man knows his own heart. He is able to see what no one else sees. He has eyes to see. He knows our heart and He knows our motive. So as we look at this passage, we need to heed the warnings given to the disciples and know that we likewise are facing potential sin and we can easily fall away from the truth into sin at any moment. So as we look at this passage, let us heed these truths. First of all, there's a clear warning given by Jesus. He tells the disciples what is lying ahead of them and how they will abandon Him. Now, He also adds that they will return to him after this immediate danger has passed. He doesn't hide the truth. He doesn't give them any excuse for what the future holds and their actions, but he assures them that he will meet them in Galilee after these dangers have passed, and therefore they will be renewed and restored. Now, Jesus knew these disciples very well. He'd been with them for three years. He knew how they were. He knew their personalities. They had different personalities. And He knew how they would respond to different situations. And Peter's reaction did not catch Jesus by surprise in what He says here. We know how Peter was throughout those three years of ministry. We know how he often put his foot in his mouth. We know that he was loyal to the Lord and he wanted to do whatever he could to make sure everyone knew that he was steadfast in his love for the Lord. Now, if we had been in Peter's shoes, we would have most likely responded similarly to how he responded there in verse 31. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So we see that Peter was steadfast. But we also see that all of the disciples, it says there in the end of that verse, and they all said likewise. So not only did Peter say that he was willing to die for the Lord, but we see that all of the disciples made this same statement. Now, it's easy for us to think that we're more spiritual than we really are. Thinking that we would not fall into this sin or that sin, but then what happens? We fall into that very sin that we think that we would never fall into. I can remember many, many years ago when I first moved to Jackson and I went to the Mississippi Baptist Convention and I saw a pastor from Laurel who we had had fellowship with, and that particular week there had been an arrest, an arrest of a pastor who 
was pastoring a church down on the coast who was using his private airplane to bring drugs in for drug dealers. And it was a very sad situation. Of course, everyone at the convention knew about it, and this particular pastor began to talk to me about it because there was an article in the Baptist record pertaining to that. And he was really blasting this particular pastor for what he had done. Surprisingly, within about a year from that time, I heard news of that particular pastor that was talking to me had an affair with a woman in his church and had to leave the ministry. And I could not help but think to myself what he had said about the other pastor falling into sin and now he had followed himself into sin. Sinclair Ferguson said, one of the reasons for disciples, the disciples' failure was that they saw only the terrible circumstances they were in. Their vision was filled with the sight of opposition and danger. But we know that Jesus saw the hand of His heavenly Father at work. He knew that He could trust His heavenly Father implicitly. And that's what the disciples needed to do, even though they did not. And Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7, which we read just a few moments ago, both in the Gospel here as well as in our Scripture reading of the Old Testament this morning. And it states that it was being fulfilled he knew that he would be abandoned by his disciples when they were confronted with this danger, that they would be overcome with fear. For the scripture foretold us this truth there in Zechariah 13, 7. Jesus knew that he was the shepherd of whom the prophet spoke of and that his disciples were the sheep. And he knew that the strike meant his death. Just as Isaiah 53, 4 says, smitten by God also speaks of his death. And we know that Jesus loved these men deeply. And he looked into their eyes and he told them the truth there in verse 27. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now this must have been difficult for Jesus to look into their eyes and to know what they would do as a result of the fear that they had. Now, the very thought of abandoning Jesus had to be difficult. I mean, it had to be a painful experience for Jesus because He truly deserved to be treated better than they treated Him. I mean, they had been with Him for three years. He had done so much for them. They owed Him their very life. And yet they left him at the most crucial time of his life. And he must have experienced the pain of abandonment. Unlike us, Jesus deserved better. I mean, we never can justify our sin, but especially after we have been warned that this sin is at the door. Avoid it. I mean, the disciples needed to heed the warning of Jesus, but what was their response? It was self-confidence. Oh Lord, we, we're not going to deny you. We're not going to abandon you. I mean, He had just told them that God was going to strike the shepherd, which is speaking of the sword of justice that would come upon Christ, that He would slay the Son of God, the Father would, and all of this is revealed as spoken of by the prophet Isaiah there in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning there in verse 4 when he says, Surely he has bore our grief and laid and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity and chastened for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see that Jesus Christ, his life will end in this manner, death on the cross. He will be hung on the cross and he will cry out to his father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only forsaken by the Father, but He also was forsaken by His closest men here on earth, the disciples. Now we know that Jesus Christ was delivered up to the cross by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And that it was God's eternal plan to put His Son to death on the cross in this particular way. Scripture says that Jesus was stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted by God. Isaiah tells us, yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. That was God's will. So He reminds the disciple what God said. I will strike the shepherd. God the Father does this. And the only perfect innocent one in the universe becomes the great suffering servant. He who knew no sin became sin to pay the wages of sin. And the Bible affirms that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for those that He loved, that eternal everlasting love. Now this is difficult for us to take in. We just sang about that a minute ago. That's what that entire song, And Can It Be, is saying. I don't grasp it. I can't fully understand all that you have done. Why would you send your innocent son to die for such a sinner as I? That's what the hymn writer Charles Wesley is saying. And that's what we're singing. We're saying it's difficult for me to take this in, God. That you would crucify your own son so that a wicked sinner such as I might live, that my sins might be blotted out with the blood of the Son. His death paid my penalty. I just cannot fully grasp that. And I believe we will spend all eternity contemplating on that and continuing to meditate about that. I mean, the righteous for the unrighteous Jesus Christ willing to become the sacrifice that was pleasing to His heavenly Father, a sweet aroma to His heavenly Father. He was the appointed Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So the warning was given to the disciples of what would happen to Him and that they would be scattered Second, notice the consequences that Jesus mentions there. As I just mentioned, the sheep will be scattered. The disciples would run off. They would show their lack of faith, their lack of strength. Again, as Isaiah 53, 6 says, We are all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. When Jesus was violently removed from their presence, they think, oh, oh, the shepherd is no more. Run for it. Let's get out of here. Let's hide. And they go off. But they don't know where to go. They're scattered. Our country is experiencing something like that today. God has been removed in what used to be called a Christian nation. We know that we're post-Christian now. It's, it's quite evident. God's been removed from everything. He's been removed from our schools, from our government, from our activities, from most homes, and even from many churches. So why are we surprised at the chaos? Sometimes 
I'm surprised that people are surprised. When they say, I just can't believe how wicked things have gotten. I, I just can't believe at the rights. I just can't believe at the chaos. I can believe it. I mean, when you kick God out of everything, what can you expect except for chaos? And that's what we're seeing. As I've shared with many people, what we're experiencing today is the grandchildren of the hippies of the 60s. That's the ones that are riding today. So why are they riding? Well, the same reason why their grandparents did. Anarchy. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to submit to God's law. They don't want to submit to God's word. And therefore, they taught their children and their grandchildren the same thing. And that's why we have such chaos today. I mean, when the shepherd is kicked out, there's nothing to expect except great confusion and upheaval. Jesus Christ is no longer the shepherd of His people in America. He is no longer the way, the truth, and the life for them. So therefore they flee to all sort of things, to cults and to other religions and to relationships and philosophies. This is what's happening even in the professing church even among liberals and moderates who have removed Jesus from the Bible. Jesus is no longer the Savior. He's simply a good teacher. He's just simply another religious figure in most churches today. The church is scattered into hundreds of different denominations and organizations. There's so many different ideas. And the majority of them have no idea whatsoever what is the gospel. I mean, go up to your, quote, average Christian and just ask them, what is the gospel? And most of them can't even tell you what the gospel is. Now, why can't they tell you what the gospel is? Because their preacher doesn't know what the gospel is, and he doesn't preach the gospel. And that's why there's so much confusion in the church today. What will cure the problems of our day today? It's not rebellion. It's not protest. It's preaching the gospel. That's what our calling is to do. That's the calling of the church, to be faithful and steadfast, to continue to preach the gospel and pray that God will use the gospel to change the world. But the sad thing about it today, if a pastor comes into most churches and stands firm on the truth, often he will be terminated because he's unloving, because he's bold with the gospel how the church needs to look to the one, to look to the shepherd again and come and sit at the shepherd's feet so it will not be scattered. Now Jesus points out to Peter, of course Peter was the leader of the disciples, that he would fall away. There Jesus tells him in verse 30 after he made his statement, Surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Jesus makes it perfectly clear to Peter that he would abandon him. But not only would he abandon him, he would deny him three times. It will not happen when Peter is in some distant country surrounded by pagans without any kind of Christian fellowship, or when he's weary and he's threatened with death, no, it's not like that. It's going to happen in just a few hours after he has heard probably the greatest sermons in the upper room that he ever heard and had been a part of the institution of the Lord's Supper, and heard Jesus pray the great high priestly prayer. That's when it's happened. After he's heard those things, after he's been involved in those religious experiences, that's when he falls. I mean, when we've been involved in those kind of religious experiences, what do we think? We think that we can go out these doors and that we can conquer the world, don't we? That's our mindset. And if we think that we can conquer the world, that's when we will fall flat on our face. And that's why Peter fell flat on his face. He thought that he could do it in his own strength and in his own power and did not heed the warning of Christ. Before the rooster crows three times, signifying the dawn, Peter would disown his Savior 
three times. That's the warning. Peter, sin is waiting at the door to pounce on you. Watch out. You are going to fall further than any of the other disciples from me this night. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter hanging. He gives a wonderful promise there in verse 28. But after all I have been raised, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So the sacrifice on the cross will be followed by what? It would be followed by the resurrection and a reunion. Though the sheep would be scattered, they will meet the living Savior again. Every time Jesus mentions about going to the cross, He also does what? He also mentions about the resurrection. Time and time again, He told them that He would not remain dead, but that He would come forth from the grave three days later. And He reveals that He is more powerful than death because He is the Son of God, because He is the Messiah that He will live again. So therefore, they will not be left to themselves scattered, but they will come back because the shepherd will come back. Thirdly, we see that the disciples rejected the warning given by Jesus. I mean, notice how quickly they reject the words of Jesus. Instantly, Peter cries out there in verse 27, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Now often, when Jesus would teach them something that was difficult, what would they do? They'd kind of huddle up and they'd discuss it. Hmm, do you, know, do you understand what Jesus said? Do you understand? You know, I think he said that. Well, let's go ask Jesus what he said. That's usually what they did, right? Not on this occasion. I mean, on this occasion, we see that there was no discussion here because they understood perfectly well what Jesus was saying as far as them abandoning Him. And Peter, the spokesman, boldly declared that even if all fall away, He will not. In other words, He's saying to Jesus, You can count on Me. I'll be there. I'll be with you. I will not desert you. Now let's be honest. This is exactly what we desire from someone who says they're a loyal follower, right? That's what we want. We want somebody to keep their word. We want someone to support us, to be loyal to us. We like that kind of attitude. And Peter's resolution and his zeal shines. I mean, he was transparent. And we love such a quality in a person. And that ought to be a quality in a Christian. That's the kind of people we ought to be. A man or a woman of our word. And usually what you saw in Peter is what you got. I like people like that. I like to know where they stand. But here we see that Peter contradicts Jesus, but he also contradicts the Bible. He was saying, Jesus... You're wrong, right? I mean, Jesus said, this is what you're going to do. And Peter said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he's contradicting Jesus. But he not only contradicts, he's saying you're going to abandon me. He also is saying you're wrong in your interpretation of Scripture. That's not what we're going to do. Jesus, you're wrong in how you're using Scripture and applying it to us. There's a lot of people like that. I mean, that's what a pastor does every time he gets into his pulpit. What We try to apply Scripture to ourselves as well as to the congregation. And sometimes people say, uh-uh, pastor, you're wrong. You're wrong. That doesn't apply to me. Now, there's been many religious men who have fallen into Peter's example. I mean, even those who have sat in the chair of Peter. You know who I'm talking about the popes, throughout century, saying they bear Peter's authority. And they themselves have contradicted the very words of Jesus for centuries. Now also notice that Peter contrasts himself with the other disciples there in verse 31. 
When he, when he points out that though all else may deny you, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to be like everyone else. I'm going to be faithful. I mean, we find those who we, are, who we imagine are more sinful than we are. And we receive some pathetic comfort in doing what Peter does. We're all been guilty of doing it. Trying to find someone worse than us and exalting ourselves because of them. I mean, how presumptuous was he? Boasting of his own strength. But Jesus cut him down to size pretty quick, did he not? He didn't let Peter boast very long. I mean, today... This night, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to disown me three times. You would think that Peter would have kept his mouth shut at that point. But again, we're like Peter. I don't know if I'd have kept my mouth shut. I'd hope I would, but knowing me, I probably would not. This probably embarrassed Peter a little bit. So even more vehemently, he says there what he says in verse 31. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And again, and they all said likewise. I mean, he's saying, Jesus, listen to me. Even if I have to be put to death with you, I'll never disown you. I would choose death rather than deny you. Now, eventually we will see in the Gospel of Mark that that's not the case, and we know that's not the case. But again, notice that all the rest said the same thing. I mean, they all walked up front. They all kneeled before Jesus. Now, I'm being a little bit exaggerated here. Make sure you know that. The scriptures say that. But what I'm doing, I'm trying to put it in the framework of what happens a lot of times in church. All coming to the altar and all kneeling at the altar and all saying, to Jesus that they are prepared to die. They put their name on the commitment card. And they began to sing, wherever He leads me, I will go. All to Jesus I surrender. What did these religious feelings on this night amount to? Well, again, within a couple of hours, they're all scattered. Within a very short time, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says, now pray and watch. What do they do? They fall asleep. I was looking around to see if anybody fell asleep this morning so far. I was going to wake you up. But they fell asleep. And Jesus comes back and says, can you not... Pray with me, watch with me for one hour. Be alert. And he goes back and he prays again. He comes back and what? They're sleeping again. And what happens? That's when the guards come to take him. I mean, what happened to those religious feelings? Die rather than deny. That's what they said. I mean, how quickly their strong convictions disappeared. How soon their their great affections to follow the Savior through thick and thin vanished. They who were so brave when they were surrounded by their Christian friends and their shepherd became a bunch of cowards. When they were surprised by this party of soldiers carrying swords and clubs and torches... But let us heed the warning of Jesus. 
Because again, I say we can be just like these disciples. Sinclair Ferguson says, The marvel is that Jesus did not love Peter any less. Even though he would deny him three times, Jesus loved him. Later, when Jesus is threefold questioned by that morning fire on the shore of Galilee, must have reminded him of his denial. Peter at last confessed, Lord, you know all things. You know that for all my failures, I really love you. And we need to remember these words when we fail Jesus as well. Because every one of us in this room at some time or another will fail Jesus multiple times. But we need to remember that Jesus is able to restore His people. Fourth, why did they fail? To listen to Jesus' warning. I mean, why were they so indifferent to Jesus' warning? Now, we don't need a psychiatrist to analyze and explain this to us because the reasons are very plain. First, they failed to take seriously the words of Jesus. They had seen the hatred of the religious leaders all that week. They'd seen that the religious leaders time and time again tried to entrap Jesus so that they could arrest Him. They knew that they were wanting to put Jesus to death. They'd heard the rumors. And now Jesus brings home the warning to them. But they didn't listen. They didn't put two and two together. But instead, they jumped to conclusions. They trusted in themselves instead of trusting in God. Even as they went to Gethsemane, as I've already mentioned, they, they fell asleep. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And again, I say and I Remind us that we can be just like them. You hear a sermon on righteousness, on temperance, on judgment. And how many of us tremble? Very few, if we were to be honest. I mean, we all face a future in which we are going to meet many temptations. Coldness of heart. The root of bitterness, selfishness, and self-pity within us. In other words, times of testing. But what do we do? Jesus told Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But was he prepared? Likewise, we need to heed the same words. Are we prepared? Do you have the foresight to heed the warning of Scripture? Will you make preparation for all of these things that will come your way? You must prepare by crying out to the one that can provide you with what you need in your time and need. Remember, Jesus had just taught the disciples about the Comforter, about the Holy Spirit, that they were connected to the vine and, and all that they would receive from Christ that they cried out to Christ, all that they would receive from the Holy Spirit to enable them to do the work that they needed to do. They'd just heard that sermon. They'd also heard the words of Jesus earlier. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Only those who believe in the Son of God possess eternal life. 
So everyone here this morning who truly has trusted and repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. What about everybody else here this morning? What does the pastor say? The wrath of God remains on him. Everyone else this morning that is not in Christ, you are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains on all who rejects Jesus Christ. So if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, you are rejecting Jesus Christ. You are under the wrath of God today. Take seriously the Word of God. Under the wrath. As Jonathan Edwards clearly gave us that picture of a spider hanging over a fire by a thread of his web. And he presented that picture so that sinners would see that that's them. You're hanging by a thread over the very pit of hell. That's the warning the Scripture gives those who are lost. But the disciples' mind had not comprehended the truth of God, had not comprehended the death of Christ. Even though Jesus Christ had explained it time and time and time again, I didn't take the time to look up how many times Jesus said in the gospel that He would die and He would come forth from the grave. But it's numerous times. There's a good project somebody can take and let me know so I don't have to spend my time doing it. You can do it for me. It didn't sink in. He had told them that the Son of Man came not to serve, I mean not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And that He was the good shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. And He had just instituted the Lord's Supper and He had said, This is My body which I give to you. This is the cup of the new covenant in My blood which is poured out for you. But they still did not grasp it. But I ask you, how many truths have you heard time and time and time again and you have not grasped it? It has not sunk in. It has not made an impact upon your life to where you took the truth of God and you applied it to your life to where it changed your life. This past weekend I was showed a post by someone that I know on, on Facebook and, and this particular person thought that they had the right and they said to just vent. You know, a lot of people do that on Facebook. I encourage your congregation, don't do that, please. Don't do that to embarrass yourself. And embarrass yourself, especially if you're a Christian, embarrass your testimony with this particular person, then it. And I thought to myself, I know they have heard the sovereignty of God over and over and over again, and they're saying things like this? I mean, it's a prime example of what I'm talking about. It has not sunk in. Saying, why would God do this to me? Why would God allow this to happen? And just on and on and on and on. I wanted to pick up the phone, but I knew it wouldn't do any good. I let their pastor handle that. But it never ceases to amaze me that people who say they know the truth live as though they don't know the truth. Say things as if they don't know the truth. No, no, I'm not saying that we never, we, we often make mistakes and say things just like this person did. But we should not do it. That's the warning I'm giving you this morning. The disciples did not know their own weakness, so therefore when danger came their way, they failed, and often we're like that. We don't know our own weakness, so therefore when sin comes our way, when danger comes our way, we fail. A person who has the wisdom of God and has heavenly wisdom, he seeks to discover his weaknesses and seeks to strengthen himself in those areas, praying that the Holy Spirit will strengthen him. I try to convey that to my wife about shopping. Hun, I just don't want to go shopping with you because I know my weakness. And when I go shopping with you, I'm going to get irritated. 
I'm going to get irritated because of all the people. I'm going to have to wait in line. This is going to happen. I, so just don't take me shopping with you. That's one of my weaknesses. I don't want to go. And you have weaknesses like that, different areas. The best way to do, some say, well, I'm just going to overcome it. Well, okay, you do that. I'm going to avoid it. On it. And pray that God give me strength when I have to do it. Listen to what Jeff Thomas said. There is far more wickedness in all our hearts than we know. We can never tell how far we'll fall when we are faced with temptation. When young David was anointed by Samuel to become king, when he killed Goliath with the sling, they destroyed the Philippian army. When the spirit of prophecy came upon him, he wrote Psalms 23. Do you think in the aftermath of those times, he'd be believing the Lord if he had warned him? not to become a peeping Tom on the roof of his palace that would lead to adultery, murder, and the death of the child? Never! David would never have said, David would have said, not me! I'd never take another man's wife and arrange for her husband to be murdered. David was utterly sincere and completely wrong. And we can put ourselves in that exact same place. Anytime we think that that sin will never affect me, we better be careful. When such circumstances and, and power of temptation come, unless you are watching and praying, you're done for. He that trusts in his own heart, the scripture says, is a fool. Proverbs 28, 26. The disciples were inexperienced. They were immature young men. They had done very little in ministry. They had been with Jesus, but they had done very little. They were simply watching. Of course, they were sent out a couple of times to preach and evangelize, but they were not veterans they didn't have great courage. They had very little experience in even being confronted with the prince of darkness. But yet they were boasting on this occasion. Kind of makes me think in 1968, I believe it was, when Camille was coming to the coast. It was the historical hurricane before Katrina came. And there were those who were boasting because they had built this, quote, hurricane house. I mean, it was going to withstand any hurricane. So they had their party in the hurricane house. The next day, all they found was a slab. They boasted. They trusted in their own heart, and they were fools. And we can be the same way. A sheep's only protection is what? Have you ever thought about that? A sheep doesn't have claws where he can fight off other animals. A sheep is not speedy to where it can run off from other animals. And I could go on and on and on to describe sheep. I don't know a whole bunch about them, but what I've read about them. But his only protection is what? A shepherd. So when the disciples reject Jesus' counsel, they were food for the wolf. But Jesus knew what would happen. So he encourages them that he will later rise and meet them in Galilee. He knew Peter would deny him three times, but he didn't cast him away. But he prepared him for greater things in the kingdom work and taught him how to love unconditionally. And we see that Peter became one of the greatest servants of God in the Scriptures. We see that in the book of Acts as well as what he writes there in the epistles of 1 and 2 Peter. I mean, what wonderful words is that verse. For even unto this were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. And Peter understood that. And he followed Christ in his steps for the rest of his life. 
even to the point when he was to be crucified, we're told that he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior, so he was crucified upside down instead. Jesus showed mercy and compassion to all of them and loved them in spite of their shortcomings. But he had that special conversation with Peter there on the Sea of Galilee. And he conveyed his love to Peter and he called him to be faithful in feeding and teaching his sheep. What about you? Have you experienced the true forgiveness of Christ for your sins? Have you looked to Him and Him alone for He's the only one that can forgive sins? Or do you remain, as I asked earlier, under the wrath of God? I pray that you would hear His calling today and cry out to Him for forgiveness and mercy and grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these verses that we have which give such a great warning. How we pray, Father, that you would cause us to hear the warnings that you give us in Scripture so that we might do that which you have told us to do, to look to you, to look for strength from your Spirit to overcome sin. May we heed all the warning, warnings in Scripture, Father, so that we might avoid falling away from the truth. We also thank you, Father, for the love and mercy and grace that you show us in so many times when we have sinned against you, when we have fallen away and that you lovingly restored us and drew us back into the fold. Calls us to follow the example of Jesus and show mercy and grace to other sinners so that they might be drawn back into the fold as well. All of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.